Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Joanne Wilson. Uh, for those of you who know tech and venture, it's, it's a name that you know really well. Um, but what's so interesting about Joanne is you're here, you can kind of like talk about anything at any time is my guess, right? So like you're our 420 uh, guest because you have an expertise in cannabis, but you've actually like 30 different topics, right? If it was like Arbor Day, you could probably come here and you'd have something you were doing that was relevant to it. Yes. Um, you know, it's great cocktail fodder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which which is good, right? See, for me, I'm so socially awkward that I just sort of hang out. If, if I have to go to a cocktail party, just I'm the guy in the corner of his phone watching the Mets game um, and not talking to you. You know, you're allowed. You're allowed. Yeah. Um, so uh, you do a zillion different things. I'm just going to try to summarize it quickly for the audience. And then okay. I'll start. So you're on a venture fund, mm-hmm. uh, and it's sort of a uniquely focused fund, and that you're really focused on female founders. Um, and you've had a lot of success with it. And you had like 150 investments in or something like that. So yep. it's like really significant. Um, you're a writer. Mm-hmm. You have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do work in real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are launching a cannabis venture. I am. Um, so that's a lot. So let's start with cannabis because we're celebrating 420. Um, so first thing first, given that you have literally the ability to do absolutely anything you want to do, what made you decide to start a cannabis venture? Instead of like getting my hair done and eating bonbons all day? Yeah, yeah. or just like, but you, you could have done a, you know, a, a venture in electric vehicles. You yes, could have done a yes, venture yes. in skyscrapers, whatever. Yeah, you know? I mean, you know, I, um, I'm i a big, you know, I saw this um, uh, documentary the other day with Laurie Anderson, uh, um, Pamela Anderson, yeah, and um, which is fun to go back with a very different lens to see her pre Baywatch. Yeah, uh, exactly. Okay. And um, she said something which I thought was really great. Which she said, um, uh, "Thinking is overrated." Okay, <laughs> just do stuff. <laughs> just do it. And so I thought, oh well, you know, that's kind of in my career. I mean, I. Um, happened to be a retail finance major. And so my first job was at Macy's, yep. and I was a buyer. Moved very quickly through that ladder um, until I was told that women don't move as quickly as men, so I bolted. Um, and um, and I've been getting, and I had this concept when I was 21 years old, which was this concept store. Um, and of course, everyone has done those since. Right. And so, you know, and I've also been like pretty much getting stoned all the time since like eighth grade. Yep, and so the <laughs> whole thing kind of melded in perfect perfection. And during COVID, I really was starting to think about like, okay, what am I going to do next? Um, because I had sort of burnt out on the investment world. Um, I was ready to do something else. And so I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll open a store. All the stores in New York are closing. Right. And then I got a call from Frank and Frank from Frankie's in um, Carroll Gardens. Yeah. And they're like, you know, we should do something in this cannabis space. I was like, well, what's happening in it? And I was like, let me look into it. And because we're in the tech world, I'm in the tech world, like I wanted an answer in 48 hours. And I like persevered these lawyers who thought like, who is this person? I was like, but I live in a different world. And so I figured it out and I talked to them and they were great. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. So, so you, <laughs> was it always a retail concept for you? Because there are a bunch of different ways that you can yes. engage in the cannabis sector. Yeah. I didn't see myself as a farmer. Really? Um, no. <laughs> um, although that, you know, I, I do love a good farm. But no, I did not see myself as a farmer. And I didn't really want to launch a singular brand um, because 
a lot of the farmers are doing that. And a lot of the people from California are coming here yeah. um, and launching their brands underneath those farms. So yeah. I, that wasn't of interest to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I always wanted to open a store. So um, a dispensary seemed like the right thing to do. And you're doing actual licensed, legit dispensary. Yes, versus the 2,000 plus that are illegal we're, through the city. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. there's literally on, so we're recording from our podcast today on, on Orchard between Houston and Stanton. Just between Houston and Rivington on Orchard, uh, last time I walked, which was two days ago, I counted six. Yes. I mean, it's like whack-a-mole. I don't even know how they all stay in business. Well, you know, the market share is big. Yeah. I mean, the numbers are crazy. Basically, I think it's next year, the cannabis space will do $30 billion in business in the United States alone. And that's legal business. So let's say it's $40 billion in business. And I yeah. wrote about this today. Candy only does $20 billion. Wow. Right? Liquor does like... But the gummies market's probably jumped up exponentially. Now, 100%. Right? Candy plus weed. Yeah. I mean, Hanro's like Heaven. rocking it. So, yeah. you know, I think that the... Um, industry as a startup person is super exciting right yeah. we're at ground zero the problems are extraordinary starting in a business that was legal until 1936 and then became illegal again thanks to this gentleman harry ainsworth who essentially realized after uh, prohibition that he was going to lose his job and his job was to oversee alcohol and drugs. And so he created this whole false narrative that marijuana was really bad and black and brown people Re are going to come madness. and get you. Yeah. Reefer madness. Right. And so he kept his job for 36 years. Wow. And that narrative continued on. And so we've used that to essentially keep people in jail. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the store itself. So you mm -hmm. got 2,000 illegal stores. Mm -hmm. I've only been to the one New York legal dispensary, the one on like 8th and Broadway, 9th and Broadway, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. The housing okay. Works That's one. Housing Works, it's, exactly. It's fine. It's very transactional. Yeah, it's fine. So what do you, given that you have, it's a little bit like what we did with the bookstore here, which was mm -hmm. like, given that money wasn't a primary consideration, it's like, okay, mm -hmm. how do I make this place really interesting and cool? Right. What's the campus But I plan on that? being profitable. The, yeah, I'm no, I, I, good, God bless you. Yeah. I have a feeling selling weed might be a better margin than it selling books. It probably is. Yeah. So I have, so my feeling about cannabis is that retail has died in America over the past 10 years, 15 years. And I have a lot of theories on why it died, but regardless, I won't go down that hole, is that if we really want to change the world with a brand new industry, by the way, cannabis is the fastest growing industry in the United States right now, then we need to create stores, places that people go, that there's a reason for them to walk in the door and stay in the door. Yeah. And so because we are such a highly litigious society, including massive um, lobbyists, um, what I have created with a fabulous team is something that is not only are we selling cannabis, we are a lifestyle store with cannabis as the foundation. So I walk in and what happens? You walk in, you're checked in like you would in a high-end hotel. Okay. And then you walk into the next room and there is a beautiful tree in the middle of the store mm -hmm. um, by the artist Molly Lowe. And through that area are products that 
connect to cannabis. So it could be, I have problems sleeping, great blankets, great eye patches, amazing candles, super cool streetwear, um, great bongs, fabulous pipes. So it's all of these different products that you would sell to someone who also is interested in buying cannabis. As someone said to me, it's in the store where adults go. Like neighborhood goods with weed. Neighborhood goods with weed. And the neighborhood goods are really tight. Like we're not buying 80 of a product. We're buying six and eight. How are you deciding what, so in a way the cannabis stuff might be the easier decision on what to stock, right? All the other stuff, are you testing all the products? Are you sort of favoring certain types of merchants? How are you going about it? I mean, it's really cutting-edge stuff. You know, it's young, up-and-coming designers, mm -hmm. things that we think is very um, feels-good, luxury, you want in your store. And, you know, and luxury is such a weird word because, you know, I think luxury is just if you're a luxurious human being, right? It could be anyone from 21 to 92. It's just like what feels good to you. Right. Um, so conceptually, mm -hmm. the, the target customer for you is different than the target customer for let's say the forget about the illegal the 2000 mm -hmm. illegal dispensaries that no one seems to do anything about but just even the housing works one how do you see your customer compared to theirs well we are definitely offering a very high-end hospitality experience yep. and so i see our customer is someone who feels comfortable walking into a cannabis store i mean there's so many people i talk to a the government could be doing some PSAs, really wouldn't take much. <laughs> I mean, most people don't even know those stores are all legal. Right. Okay, that's number one. Number two is you don't know where the shit is coming from. No. Nope. Okay, and so if you go to our store, you know it's legal, you know it came from a New York State farm, you know that the government gave it a sign-off, you're not smoking something that's going to make you sick or kill you. And so, and you feel comfortable going into that store because it's beautiful, it's luxury, there's great products. We also are gonna um, partnering to start with Bright Moments, which is the largest gallery of NFTs across the world. Mm -hmm. We'll be minting um, NFTs there at different times. And so, you know, it's a place where you wanna go and see what's happening and seeing what's new. And we're doing all these things for the neighborhood. And so it's, a different experience like you don't feel like gross walking in there where it's like just super transactional and you're not even you know sure what you're buying I mean if you read data most people are like I can't sleep or I have pain or I have anxiety right and you want someone on the other side of the counter right. that actually knows what to give you and so how does the testing I mean you guys aren't running a lab and testing products mm -hmm. right so how does it work where I can walk into your store, feel totally confident, whereas if I'm walking to one of the six illegal places on this block, I don't really know. So what, what differentiates it? Well, it is, um, it goes through a process from the farmer to the government, giving it the check, it's good to go, and then you can sell your products. Um, you know, I'm not that familiar with what exactly they do, but you know, you have to get that passed in right. order to sell it legally. Right, um, so you, I mean, I guess given who you are, you, you weren't going to open up an illegal store, but you went about the whole process of, of applying There's for a There's a lot of thought about why wouldn't you? Well, that's where I'm kind of going. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you could not, right? But if you're not Joanne Wilson, um, why would you not just say, fuck it, I'm just going to open it. I'm not going to pay taxes. I'll take cash. Um, and I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. I'm not going to pay for licensing. You know, what, what 
what is the argument that the state can make, given its refusal to enforce the laws, to make anyone want to pursue a license? That's a good, good question. I mean, the truth is I never follow rules, so God knows why I did that. But I will say, you know, I want to believe in the long run this will all be cleared out. It might take 10 years. I mean, we can point to California and see what a mess they are now. Um, I think... Listen, one of the things that we wanted to do when we opened the store is we wanted to give 15 or 20 percent of the EBITDA back to our public charity, which is Gotham Gives. Mm -hmm. um, and that is giving to places like a Strive, like a JED, organizations that have serious ROI on what they're yeah. they're putting money into. So I was able to partner with Strive because it's something that we have been philanthropic to for years. Um, and the way that it's set up in the government is Strive owns 51% of this particular store. And, you know, think about that, 51%, right? And I was willing to do it because it made sense. We'd be first to open, and we were going to give a lot of this money back, too. Yeah. All of our employees are on the same insurance plan. Um, that includes the C-team down to the delivery man, um, as well as, um, you know, uh, doing the right thing by the employees. And so you look at that, it is literally so difficult to start these businesses. Get a bank account. Get someone to pay your people through, like Just Works couldn't do it because they don't want to be in the cannabis right. business yet. By the way, there's a business for a vice processing, payment processing somewhere that definitely should exist that uh, we should talk about. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. so it is so hard getting insurance. I mean... On and on. You can't use credit cards. I mean, right. Amazon and American Express are the largest lobbyists to the government to make this legal. Right. And so, you know, it's really hard. Now, I've been in business for a long time. I understand how businesses work. So actually having merchandise is a separate business. That's a separate LLC. That's in the store. That business can have regular deductions. Cannabis businesses, because of the 280E, only can has to pay taxes at a 70% rate yep. with the only deductions being their employees. That's utterly ridiculous. So you have to be very smart about how you set up these businesses in order to make money. The issue being is that all of the people, that is mostly people who have been previously incarcerated, the government is doing the right thing, but they're basically giving them a poll and say, hey, the lake is down the street. If you could figure out where it is, you can go fishing. Right, not so easy. Right. right. If it's you not, have a zillion lawyers, you can is, figure stuff out. Exactly. And um, it's really painful. And we're going to have a lot of people that are going to take out loans, and they're going to find out they have more taxes than they made that year. And again, it's the systemic racism. Everyone thinks they're doing a great job, but the truth is they're not. They're going to kill all these people. What happened? So the Biden administration put... Uh, under review, removing cannabis from Schedule 1, which I think any breathing person would, would agree makes sense. Yes. Once that happens, mm -hmm. the the reason why I've never invested in a cannabis tech startup mm -hmm. is because the question I could never answer was, eventually it goes off of Schedule 1. At some point, Unilever and Kraft and Johnson & Johnson, everyone get into the game because why wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. And then once that happens, why would whatever company that's pitching me still be able to succeed, or is there something about them so special that they would choose to, to be bought, or that they would choose to buy them as opposed to just building it themselves? And I can sort of almost never get to yes on that. Um, how do you think the cannabis world changes 
once it is removed from Schedule 1? And do you think that the Unilevers of the world, that's enough, or they're going to wait for full federal legislation that legalizes it to do it? I think the large companies will wait for full federal legal yeah. legalization, but just like any good CPG product, they're not capable of creating brand new CPG products over there at General Mills. Right. The only way to hold their market share is to buy the brand new companies that have been built up, um, and then they let them sort of like wander in the hinterlands when they get into those companies. And so they might have been doing $500 million a year. They bought them for, let's say, you know, two and a half times earnings. And then like they slide down to like $300 million. And you know what? General Mills seems to be okay with that. Right. So I think we will get there in cannabis. It will take a long time. But also remember, it will take a longer time for states to ship out of state to others. So you can only buy cannabis yeah. by each particular and state. Let's say that it's removed from Schedule 1 and DOJ says interstate commerce clause gives us authority over sort of any kind of interstate business. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to enforce it. So like if you want to, you know, grow stuff in California and ship it to New York, no problem. Mm -hmm. um, does that then lead people to start doing it? Or do you think, again, they're going to be too afraid until there's like explicit permission? Well, it has to be federally legal. And by the way, it's being done right now all over the damn place. That's how right. they get this stuff in the legal stores. But um, I have very mixed feelings about that. I mean, you are just giving farmers licenses to grow. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yep. By the way, great products. The weed is really good. And their branding is great. There's some really great companies out there, good farmers. And then all of a sudden, you find out, holy shit, you can buy it from California. Like, we're screwing all those people. So there has to allow state by state for those farmers to really grow into something and create um, relationships with stores and consumers before we let that out to being, I think, across uh, each state's borders. Business, yeah. um, but the thing that's really impeding this is the federal government. And if you look at the data, it's not Americans. It's, I hate to say it, it's the Republican Party who is beholden to pharmaceutical and others that are not so hot for cannabis to become federally legal. Right. And because of that, they're putting money in those pockets as lobbyists. I mean, since it was legalized in California as a recreational product, yep. um, pharmaceutical sales have dropped by 11%. Right, because you don't necessarily need every type of medication if there's something natural that can help you in a different way. That's right. I mean, I have a, a, um, someone who works for me. She was never a big pot smoker, and she's like, you know, I've been trying these gummies and now I'm smoking. She's, she goes, you know, I got to be honest. My anxiety levels have plummeted. It's like I'm a different person. And she's like, this is amazing. Right. And I've heard that from many people. Right. So, you know, you're like, then why do I need Xanax every day? Right. Yeah, which come with their own side effects and risks and challenges 100%. And, and cost. So uh, before we switch into venture, um, how do people go to the store? Where is it? What's the website? All yeah, that stuff. It's gotham.nyc. Okay. Um, and we are opening on May 11th. Okay. And um, location? Location is 3 East 3rd Street on the Bowery. Um, hopefully they're going to open up the regs to apply for more stores. And we hope to have three stores in total in New York when we're done. Awesome. Um, all right. Venture. So, so yes. do, you, do you see the world as a 
pre and post SVB collapse? And if so, what's different today than it was for you six weeks ago? So for what it's worth, I saw this coming a long time ago, and I dipped from the investment world a couple of years ago. It doesn't say I don't invest, but I have done very few investments in the last couple of years. And the reason is, is because the valuations got out of control. Totally. Right? And so if you're an angel investor and you're coming in and you're like, well, I only would do, you know, what I did years ago, $50,000, I own 1%. Let's see if it actually, you do have a worthwhile product. They're coming out of Y Combinator at $20 million. Right. So how do they think? Refusing any dilution. Refusing and, anything. Oh, right. Yeah. It's like, right. They, we saying that we, we, I mean, we're lifted, we obviously have to invest because we're a fund, but we slowed down our pace of investing considerably until recently, right? Mm-hmm. And then the last six months bumped it way back up because valuations started getting, it was even just the, the math. I, it was a little bit like, I don't know if you felt this way, I'd be on a phone with a founder, first first call, and then I'm told, like, you have to submit a term sheet in 20 minutes. Oh, yes. I'm like, fuck you. I'm not doing that. Totally. Yes. And that was created in Silicon Valley. And, you know, SVB started giving out ridiculous amounts of loans with very few covenants. And they became a venture firm. Right. And the truth is, like, yes, you can be a venture capitalist if you have a fund or you have money and you can look at numbers and you're analytical. But if you also have to have something that not everyone has, which is a gut feeling about a founder and an industry that this product is going to change and make a difference. Right. And, you know, to me, that's the most important part because we are creating economies and jobs. Right. You know, and I think that I also got disgusted on how many venture firms put money into firms that they knew would go up, go out, they'd make their money, and then they don't give a shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. It seems to me um, that there's almost like this joke that almost everyone is in on it. And um, it's funny. We The only reason you're not in it is if you don't raise the biggest funds you can. And in mm-hmm. fact, one of the reasons that we had stayed sub 250 was a conversation with, with Andy at, at USV. And I said to him, I was at the lunch with him, and I said, what's the worst fund you ever raised? And he's like, when well, we raised too much money. 100%. And I was like, and I've never lost sight of that, so I've always kind of followed there. But, but it seems to me that you've had this basic thing where someone now says, okay, I'm going to raise a $500 million Series A fund. Mm-hmm. I'll pocket $10 bucks a year in management fees. I need $3 million to run the business or whatever it is. I'm going to the rest. And they don't really give a shit about the carry or the returns to their investors I or totally anything agree. else. And then, but in order to write a check for a Series A deal out of a $500 million fund, you can't write a $2.5 million check. you got to write a $10 million check, mm-hmm. which means the valuation has to be wildly inflated. And then everyone in on the, you know, on the joke all the way through Fidelity, the Series G or whatever it is, company goes public and the public markets rightfully slash the valuation by 70% in the first month because it shouldn't have never been at 38 billion or whatever it was in the first place. A hundred percent. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, venture people are investing in companies at not only ridiculous valuations, but they're, they're not managing their funds properly. Like I talked to some young venture capitalist. He's like, I was like, how's your first fund doing? Oh, we're killing it. You know, I was like, really? Like, give it to me, right? So he goes through this one particular company, which, by the way, is doing quite good. I was like, well, they're doing a huge round. Why don't you sell half of your, all of your position? All your position pays everyone back. And then you're playing at a zero-sum game. He goes, "I, I didn't know that's what you're supposed to do. I was like, are you kidding me? That's like... Portfolio Management 101. And the other thing that has happened, all of these new funds have started, and then they go out and raise money before they've even shown their first fund works. Right. 
And you're like, well, I've not seen anything that I see is going to be a worthy return. Why do I want to put money into the fund number two? Right. That's It's funny. So we're, <laughs> we're probably Q3, we'll start raising fund four. And we have a DPI of, of over two now. Um, and it's like, okay, I, it's not just like on paper I have these returns. Like I've given people their money back plus a whole nother turn on it. Plus it's another two or three X sitting there, you know. In, in equity, and we'll see where that all goes. But yeah, it's, it seems like those kind of results. Um, and it, it, it's funny, you know, so for me, because, you know, I came out of politics, I, I didn't do this until, you know, six, seven years ago. Um, so when I went out and raised my first fund, I thought, like, I had this different concept, right? I'm going to invest in lean into regulation and deal with it because I have this specific background. And, and what I thought was like LPs would be excited by the idea of like something totally new and different. And it turned out the reason it took me two years to raise $35 million was what they really wanted was to know my fund is exactly like everything you already know with the tiniest possible twist. Totally. And then for them, if someone was a partner at Andreessen, it's like, okay, here's $100 million. And it's like, well, what about their fund is in any way interesting or different? Nothing. Do you think funds get washed out now, given the, the change in the market and the economy? I think there'll be a lot of washing out. There'll be a lot of washing out of companies, too. And, um, you know, these funds, if the LPs really took a time, particularly LPs like the University of Texas, right, right. or the, um, you know, retirement fund for Oregon, yeah. right, if they look at their returns on many of these venture funds, the returns are no different than social funds. So maybe, maybe they'll say, wait a second, if we're only going to get these kind of returns on these kind of funds, maybe we should think about investing in companies, funds that are actually putting money into companies that are going to change the world for a better place. Right. Yeah. No, you're definitely seeing that. Um, frame home. Real yes. estate. So you have. <laughs> so we've talked. About, we've talked about cannabis. We've talked about venture. Now we're in a totally different thing. Totally I'm sort different. of fascinated by the fact that you do all these different things. So give for the listeners who don't know about Frame Home. Give us a minute on what it is, why you're doing it, and what you're excited about. Frame Home is a uh, apartment building in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. that is completely sustainable and beautiful. And um, it's a rental. We also have um, frame work, which is the ground floor, um, where it is like, you know, a little we work, but everyone gets their own space and um, you can rent out that space um, so you don't have to sit in your apartment and work. Right. Um, and what's the, it, how's it going? And do you sort of see an expansion of the model? Yeah, no, it's going great. I mean, one thing that's wonderful about it is we really took a lot of time and thought process to detail and how people are going to live. Like I would build my own apartment and very much wanted to make sure that, you know, we used, um, cross laminated timber, that we were completely carbon neutral. Um, what's interesting to me and actually fascinating because you have all these large, horrible real estate companies in this city that build the most ugly things. I mean, Hudson Yards is right. like the, the opus of that, is that we were the first to make a carbon neutral apartment building in New York City as a first time developer. Um, what's wonderful is that we rented the entire building, which is only 12 apartments, in four days. Because people wanted to be part That's of that. That's right. Right. And no one's ever left. 
Right, because that's the whole, right, you're right. seeing kind of especially, I see this with my kids, right? They, they are leaning into brands that they feel good about. Mm-hmm. Um, so why not do 100 more of these? Well, we are. We're building Run right now, um, which is on uh, 118 Waverly, which is also right near there. Yeah. And we're looking for another spot as well. I mean, it really came down to... You could put the dispensary in the ground floor. Yeah, I could. Um, but, you know, there's a whole lawsuit in Brooklyn for a while that you couldn't put a dispensary in Brooklyn. Um, but I kind of want to go after the Danny Meyer model, which he used at the beginning, which is you could walk from store to store, Yeah. you know, um, <laughs> to see what's going on. So going to Brooklyn is a whole other situation. Um, although you never know. Um, and, um, you know, we love it. I mean, we are, are in very, very highly risk businesses and real estate is the complete opposite and so i think what we decide is we would take the the money we made in high risk and put it in low risk it, and put it and in the real pace estate. of re- the reason I, i've always sort of whenever i think it'd be fun to do real estate is like i'm so fucking impatient i don't think i could possibly handle the pace of it how do you you're not patient so how do you no. deal with that um i like building things you know i mean i'm also done a lot of design work like in our homes, yeah. like I've done, I've been the decorator and I've done everything. We've built our places from scratch and like I've overseen that. So, and we have a great uh, team of people that, you know, are at every meeting. And so we're not out there by ourselves. But the thing with real estate, which is interesting, if you've built a thousand different projects, a thousand and one is different. Right. It's always unique. It's always unique. And, um, you know, the people that are in it, most of people did not go to college to be a contractor. Right, right. Yeah, which, by the way, is, is one of our recent episodes was, I've become convinced that where you go to college doesn't fucking matter in the first place. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Now, yeah. I've got a, a kid who's a junior in high school, and it's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. Wherever you want to go is fine. I don't care. It'll, it'll all be fine. So last topic, because we're sitting here in a bookstore. Despite mm-hmm. doing all this stuff, you read a ton. I do. And what you do that I love is you actually write, it's not a long thing, but you write a couple of sentences about each book. Is it every book you read or only the ones that you like? It's the books I get through. Okay. And what percentage <laughs> would you say is that? <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes you're on a roll. Yes, yes. <laughs> and sometimes, like, I just finished this book, and I'm just like, why did I even finish this horrible book? You know? But I would say 90% of them I really do finish. I mean, I, I do research before I pick, I read a book. Right. Well, that's pretty good. Because I, I have a very quick trigger finger um, in the sense that my view is, so I'm 49 years old. Let's say I get really lucky and I live another 50 years, right? And let's At least say, we all hope. Right. Let's <laughs> say I can read... 50 to 70 books a year. We're still mm-hmm. only talking of roughly 3,000 books, and there are millions of books that have been written. So if after 40 pages it's not doing it for me, why not pivot to something else? Yeah, I totally agree. I pivot if it's not good. Um, but sometimes it's like, you know, you persevere. It's like going to theater. Like, I have no problem walking out after uh, at halftime. Half time, yeah. Like, none. It's like calling an audible. It's like, this is awful. And then sometimes people are like, the second act was so much better. Um, I don't believe it, but you know, it's like the book. It's like if you'd really gotten to like page 800, it would have been fabulous. Come together exactly. for you. All right, so best book you've read this year? Hmm. God, I've read so many. I have to say, I love Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow. Me too. Me too. I love that book. I love it. I mean, you could relate to yeah. these characters, right? And I don't think you have to. I mean, so you and I are attacked, but I don't think you have to be. Mm-mm. To relate to it. They were just great characters. They were great characters. And um, I just really loved that book. I thought it was really well written. It kept your um, 
kept you interested, and the characters were just fantastic. I mean, yeah. I could visualize the characters. Yeah, totally, and, and cared about them. And, and their, the fact that their relationship wasn't romantic in some ways made it even better, mm-hmm. I think. You know, because it just was like what a, what a real friendship could look like, yeah. especially between people of different genders. So yeah. uh, all right, well, if you haven't, I've already been talked. I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard me talk about Tomorrow Tomorrow a bunch already, so you've probably already read it. But if you haven't, here's yet another uh, valid endorsement coming out. Yeah, so, it's a win. Um, so overall, we talked about how people can find uh, the dispensary. If people want to generally just follow what you're up to, what's the best way to do that? Well, I still blog pretty much every day, which is kind of fascinating. Now I'm at the point where I'm like, Maybe my great grandchildren will be able to read this stuff. Yeah, you know? historical you know? Unless, Of course, you know the company goes under and then everything goes to shit and you can't find it, which has happened before. We used to do these podcasts way back, um, God, in twenty years ago, and um, we only have a few of them because Fred was smart enough to take them off the web. Um, which is kind of a bummer. So I write every day at GothamGal.com. You can find the store at Gotham.nyc. And you can follow on Twitter, although Twitter is a dying breed. So, so sad. Um, At Instagram at TheGothamGal. And we're on Instagram at Gotham.ny. There we go. Julian Walsh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Cool.